Hi everyone, today I'm going to be reading Matthew chapter 7 verses 15 to 23. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but a deceased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a deceased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do the mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, workers of lawlessness. Thank you, Olivia, for reading today's scripture passage. The verses read are found in the final section of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. As he draws his sermon to a close, Jesus speaks of two gates, uh, one narrow, the other wide. There are two kinds of prophets, some true and others false. Two kinds of disciples, authentic followers and those who just pretend. And finally, there are two foundations, one a rock and the other sand. In these final four scenes, all of humanity stands before Jesus. Decisions must be made. Dire warnings are given. We fail to pay attention to our own peril. Before unpacking our text, allow me to recount an old story. In the 8th century, the Arabic military commander Tariq landed on Spain's shores. Realizing his troops were vastly outnumbered, he did something counterintuitive. He told his troops to burn their boats. That burning destroyed their only insurance policy. Gathering his troubled men, he told them, Behind you is the sea, before you the enemy. You are vastly outnumbered. All you have is sword and courage. There was no option left but to throw everything into the fight. Burning the boats established what the Chinese war strategist Sun Tzu called the death ground. The desperate place where you either fight or die. With the boats burned, there could be no observers, no divided loyalties. There was no room for critics on Spain's shores. There were only two choices, do or die. Every troop had to make a personal decision. In Matthew chapter 7, in each of Jesus' warnings, he, he tells each one of us that we must make a decision. Are we with him or against him? Have we entered his kingdom or are we committed to another kingdom? Do we want the counterculture of heaven or do we prefer the prevailing culture of earth? Do we want that which is eternal or what is immediate and fleeting? Do we want to live or die? We stand on a death ground, as it were. Our decisions have eternal consequences. After presenting the challenge of the two gates, Jesus turns to threats, both external and internal. Again, each one of us will have decisions to make. Jesus says in verse 15, Be aware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. 
Notice that the wolves do not come as wolves. They come disguised as sheep. Wolves are the perennial enemy of sheep. If they came as wolves, the sheep would run. No, the false prophets come masquerading as one of the fold. Later, the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Corinth, this is 2 Corinthians chapter 11, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. End of quote. False prophets, they appear to be genuine members of God's people because of their spiritual language and their association with the church, but they are imposters. Outwardly, they look like sheep, but their intention is to ravage the flock for their own gratification. They are not only deceptive, they are extremely dangerous. So our first task is to acknowledge the danger of false prophets. Acknowledge the danger of false prophets. Jesus just assumes that there will be false prophets. He was steeped in Old Testament warnings against false prophets who preached peace when there would be no peace, who spoke forth visions from their own minds. At the end of Matthew, when he speaks of the last days, Jesus gives this warning. This is Matthew chapter 24. 24, 11. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. The period preceding the end will be characterized not only by the worldwide spread of the gospel as we see in our day, but also the prevalence of false prophets who lead many astray. The early church, while it was expanding exponentially, faced these false prophets, false apostles, false teachers predicted by Jesus. Because of their presence, the Apostle Paul gives this warning to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. We need to be alert in our day. What is the primary false gospel being preached in our day? Perhaps the most pervasive gospel in North American society is the secular humanism gospel. Most people do not think through its foundations, meaning, and implications, but they live by it with a a street-level faith in its truth. It represents the wide path of our day. The first premise of this gospel is that as we progress in time, we will also advance scientifically, technologically, politically, and morally. A free, fair, and prosperous future is just before us. We can have the kingdom as we desire it without King Jesus. The second premise is that a utopia, a perfect imaginary wonderland, 
awaits us. And it is designed and powered by enlightened humans. A fundamental belief in this gospel is that with the right conditions and influences, we humans are perfectible and we can realize our full potential, our best selves. All we need is more education, information, and encouragement. The third premise is that God is just unnecessary. In fact, this secular humanism gospel proclaims that Christianity is one of the heresies that has actually enslaved us, hindered us. What we need is to get back to our pure state. Prior to the colonial era, for sure. Prior to Christianity. Prior to ancient cultures. Probably prior to history as we know it. Back to a time when we were in harmony with nature. If we get back to our primal state, we will be able to build a new morality free of divine oppression and human structures that bind us today. Now, this secular humanism gospel, it is fragile. It is fracturing. The gaps between its promises and reality are widening. Our technological and scientific knowledge has increased exponentially. But on the social front, we see a return to tribalism, a growth in economic disparity, a growing distance between elites and common people. In our private worlds, we observe increasing levels of anxiety and mental health disorders, falling IQ levels, epidemic loneliness, despite hyperconnection, and the persistence of discrimination, bigotry, and hatred. Addiction to drugs, food, technology, sex, and gambling are widespread. In reality, we are regressing. As North America tries to create a world without God, it is falling in on itself. As people without God push toward cultural, moral, and political renewal, their brokenness and sin is becoming more and more exposed. We find we do not have the strength to fight for the land we would like to take, the kingdom we would like to build. We're too weak, we're too fractured to build our utopia. We must admit, we are all influenced by this gospel at some level because it is just so pervasive in our culture. How do we discern it and live differently? Another parallel gospel is growing within the life of the church. In this gospel, Jesus is said to be a good way, but not not the only way. Who knows whether or not Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Surely we know the Bible is written by men, they say. All roads lead to life. There's a wide gate with a wide path to self-fulfillment. The proponents of this gospel allege that the atoning sacrifice of Jesus requires a new interpretation. After all, we are not fallen sinners. Why do we need a Redeemer who reconciles us to God? The gospel message, as presented in Scripture, it is argued, is too negative, too constraining, too rule-bound. What we need is something new. What is their new message? Well, they say that God is in all things already, and we humans are, in our very essence, divine. Isn't that a sweet message? We're essentially good, they say. We deserve to be happy, content, and free. If we could just shed the negative conditioning that we've experienced, well, we could get back to our true selves. The path to our healing is found in affirming ourselves, being unconditional friends to ourselves, finding our best selves. 
Have you heard this gospel? Jesus says, beware of false prophets. He warns his followers to be on their guard and pay attention to what they are seeing around them, what they are hearing. Commentator Michael Wilkins writes, If there is any lesson of history from which we should learn, it is that churches, denominations, schools, and mission groups have been and are susceptible to false teaching. So we must be discerning of false prophets. Be discerning of false prophets. How do we discern what is under the wool? A sheep or a wolf. In verse 16, Jesus, he shifts the metaphor from wolves in sheep's clothing to trees and their fruit. A wolf may disguise itself for a time, but no tree can hide its identity for long. Verse 16, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Grapes and figs were part of the staple diet in Israel. From a distance, a little blackberry on the thorn brush could be mistaken for a grape. The flower on a thistle might look like a fig from a distance, but the deception did not last for long as one approached the thorn bush and the thistle. Thorn bushes and thistles were hurtful weeds that choked out other plants. Thorn bushes and thistles would never produce healthy fruit, Jesus says. How do we discern the thorn bushes and thistles of our day? My wife Judy has on her smartphone an app that tells her the name and nature of the plant that she is observing. The disciples of Jesus do not have an app on their smartphones, but they could observe the fruit. So what kind of fruit needs to be discerned? First, we need to discern their deeds. In the English language, we lose an emphasis that is found in the Greek language of our text. The verb to do is translated to bear in verses 17, 18, and 19. It appears five times in those verses. It's translated does in verse 21 and do in verse 22. Something is to be observed in the doing of the false prophets. One's conduct always proceeds from one's inner life. In the book of Galatians, for example, Paul encourages the Galatian disciples to examine their own lives and the lives of the false teachers because those who belong to Jesus will bear the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. They will not bear the, the works of the flesh. In a similar manner, the disciples of Jesus must evaluate whether or not the prophet's life is consistent with the kingdom life presented by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Is the prophet Christ-like, like Jesus, in their character and conduct? So we discern their deeds. Then we must also discern their words. One of the main characteristics of false prophets in the Old Testament was their empty optimism. 
They denied that God was the God of judgment. The prophet Jeremiah wrote these words, Jeremiah 14. Then I said, Lord God, behold, the prophets say to them, you shall not see sword, nor shall you have famine, but I will give you assured peace in this place. And the Lord said to me, the prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I did not send them, nor did I command them or or speak to them. They are prophesying to you a lying vision, worthless divination, and the deceit of their own minds. The false prophets of the Old Testament gave people a false sense of security. People were lulled to sleep in their sins. There was no need for them to repent or change according to the false prophets. The issue of salvation was blurred. When we look at the Sermon on the Mount, we see that its flow indicates that the false prophets referred to by Jesus, they were challenging the narrow, beautiful way taught by Jesus. Today's spiritual gurus, they use spiritual language to say similar things. Recently, I I was studying the work of a theologian who promotes the universalist doctrine. He was emphasizing the need to preach, preach a more positive, loving message. He questioned the need for Christ's death on our behalf. He insinuated that perhaps the death and resurrection of Jesus were just a metaphor for our own death and rebirth. He undermined the authority of the scriptures and proclaimed the gospel of all paths leading to God's ocean of love. After all, we are all essentially good, he said. God would never judge. And then I discovered that he was facing more than three dozen accusations of psychological, spiritual, and sexual abuse. You know, and there's absolutely nothing new under the sun. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, verse 33, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit, You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned." A person's heart is revealed in one's words. What are the things that we should observe in their words? Well, first, what do they say about Jesus? Do they present the Jesus of the scriptures, or do they present another version of Jesus? What do they say about the scriptures? Do they hold the scriptures to be the divinely inspired, authoritative word of God, or just a collection of inspired documents worthy of our consideration? What do they say about the human condition? Are we morally depraved and in desperate need of a savior? Or are we essentially good? Fourthly, what is the path of salvation presented? Are we sinners saved by the grace of God alone through faith in Jesus alone, or are we essentially good and just needing to rid ourselves of some negative influences in order to return to our true good self? Fifth, 
What do they say about the narrow path? Is there one path according to God's revealed will, the way of Jesus? Or are there many roads to salvation? We must discern their words. And then we must also discern their influence. The false prophet undermines faith in God and leads you to trust in other resources. False prophets are divisive. Speak forth prophecies that are not fulfilled. They justify their suspicious behavior. They teach for gain, for prestige, for the transmission of their own ideas. They make themselves the hero of the story. A true prophet will teach to bless others, communicate biblical truth, and direct all to the glory of God. William Barclay writes, The wolf cares for nothing but to satisfy his own gluttony and his own greed. The false prophet is in the business of teaching, not for what he can give to others, but for what he can get to himself. You cannot expect good fruit if the source is rotten. We must discern with gentleness but also face squarely the dire consequences of false prophecy and false teaching. This does not legitimize a suspicious spirit, a censorious spirit, or endless heresy hunting. But we must be discerning. This is part of our maturing process. So each one of us must make a personal decision. We need to make a personal decision. First, we need to decide to stay true to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then in verses 21 to 23, Jesus turns from false prophets to false disciples. In his audience, he has disciples, religious leaders, and the crowds. Jesus does not allow them. He does not allow his hearers to remain neutral. He says in verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness." Why would this profession, Lord, Lord, not be accepted by Jesus? It appears respectful, even orthodox, perhaps even enthusiastic. Did Paul not write that if we confess Jesus as Lord, we will be saved? Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Notice, Paul speaks not only of words spoken with the lips, but also of believing with the heart. He talks about wholehearted surrender, entrusting oneself to Jesus. The profession of Jesus as Lord must be followed by a life of obedience. Jesus wants our lives, not just our lips. The danger here is inside us. 
in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, we hear the first address in Matthew's gospel to Jesus as Lord. When we hear the double address, Lord, Lord, we think of Jesus ascended and sitting at the right hand of the Father, reigning over all of creation and all of history. And he is Lord. In the context of the Sermon of the Mount, however, Lord could have simply meant a title of respect like Sir, 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 or Teacher. And the moment of this profession in Matthew is critical for our understanding. On that day, the day referred to by Jesus, it's the day of judgment. In view is the last day when his supreme power will be revealed. In Matthew chapter 25, the same address is used when people request entrance to the wedding banquet and where Jesus is addressed as judge. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, at the day of judgment will enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because those who enter must repent of their sin and be born again by the Spirit of God. The false disciples of these verses are just saying words. They have never come under Jesus' lordship. Jesus' followers must follow his way, that is, do the will of his Father who is in heaven. At the end of the day, literally, Obedience to the Father's will, as revealed and fulfilled by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, is what matters, not conferring titles on Jesus or even charismatic activity. For certain, prophetic words, signs, and wonders accompanied the ministry of Jesus and his disciples, but they are not necessarily a sign of true discipleship. Signs and wonders can confirm the gospel message as presented in the New Testament as in the life of Jesus and his disciples. But the enemy, our spiritual enemy, will do his best to counterfeit the works of the kingdom. Jesus says in Matthew 24, verse 24, that false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders. False disciples will use the name of God to prophesy, cast out demons, and do miracles, but their works will have no eternal value before God because they are done by another power for the glory of another. They deceive themselves and others. Mighty works are not full proof of the Father's presence because they can come from other sources, including demons and human contrivance. The external is not the highest sign of authenticity. Real inner life transformation is the test of the kingdom of heaven's presence. Jesus' words in these verses are incisive. He declares that one day he will exercise his prerogative as judge and condemn false prophets and false disciples. Their destination is eternal destruction. This is his clear teaching, not only here in Matthew 7, but Matthew 10, 11, 12, 13, 25. Why will he do this? Because he never knew them. Can you imagine hearing these words from Jesus? I never knew you. A person can come close to spiritual reality, like Balaam, Judas Iscariot, Simon the sorcerer, yet not know its source. To enter the kingdom of heaven, you must know Jesus and be known by Jesus. To know is more than acquaintance or recognition or respect. It refers to relationship with Jesus as his disciple. Jesus, he knows who belongs to him. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 3, we read, But if anyone loves God, he's known by God. In verse 19 of Matthew 7, Jesus says, The bad trees will be burned in fire, a striking metaphor of future judgment of false prophets. Here in chapter 7, verse 23, Jesus says to the false disciples, Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The broad road is the road of eternal destruction in hell, the destruction of all that is lovely, beautiful, and true, of love, joy, peace, and hope. The broad road is actually suicide road. So we need to make a personal decision. Make Jesus Lord of your whole life, not just a word on your lips. Right now you may be asking yourself, am I a follower of Jesus? You can ask yourself some simple reflection questions. These are heart questions. I'll post them as we transition to the Lord's Supper.
What are the decisions that you are making today? As Jesus says in our passage today, our lives have eternal significance. If you have never made the decision to surrender your life to Jesus, I would invite you to pray with me today. Pray this prayer. Jesus, thank you for the invitation to know you. I've been on the wide path of life following the gospel of self-fulfillment, trying to make life work without you. Forgive me. Thank you for dying on the cross and paying the price for all my sin before I ever had a thought about you. In my desperation today, I acknowledge how much I need you. I repent and surrender my whole life to you. I turn to you for new life. Jesus, lead me from this day forward. Fill me with your spirit. Set me free from all that binds me. Make me into the kind of person you created me to be. I want to be like you. Thank you for adopting me into your family and gifting me with eternal life. In your name I pray. Amen. If you prayed this prayer today, please talk to a friend who follows Jesus. Or you can click on the I Commit Myself to Jesus button on your screen. We would love to connect with you and encourage you. And if you prayed to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior today, we invite you to join us at the Lord's Supper. In the section of 1 Corinthians where Paul writes about the Lord's Supper, he pens these words in chapter 10, chapter 10, verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Even here we see that we must decide. There are two paths and we must decide. When we come to the Lord's table, we're making a declaration. Each time we eat the bread and drink the cup, we're declaring that we have decided that Jesus is our only Savior and Lord. He's our only shepherd and guide. As we express gratitude from the deepest parts of our being for our salvation from our empty paths, we give Jesus the glory. We've been reconciled with God. Forgiveness, freedom from guilt, the removal of shame, victory over death, eternal life, power to not sin, the transforming presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, all of this and much more is ours by grace. We are members of God's family by grace. So let's take a minute to thank God. Father, we thank you. It is truly by your grace that we have been drawn to you, to salvation in Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for coming and living among us, for revealing the Father to us. We thank you, Jesus, for being faithful right to death, for going to the cross and taking upon yourself all of our sin, paying the price, the penalty for our sin 
a price we could never pay on our own. Lord, you took the punishment that we deserved and you opened the way for us to be forgiven, to have relationship with the Father, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to receive the gift of eternal life. And so, Lord, all that we have, all that we are, it is all by grace. And Jesus, as we come to your table again today, we just say, we love you. Jesus, you are our Savior. You are our Lord, our shepherd, our guide. Jesus, we commit ourselves to follow you faithfully in every area of life. And we pray, Lord, that the ongoing work of your Holy Spirit in us would continue. Make us like yourself, Jesus. We want to bring you all the glory in all that we say and all that we do. And so, Lord, we're humbled and we're grateful and we praise you in Jesus' name. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The body of Christ broken for you. Let's participate together. Paul goes on in verse 25. In the same way also he, Jesus, took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The blood of Jesus shed for you. Let's participate together. Paul continues in verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Paul speaks to the hope that we have in Jesus. There is a day coming. A day, yes, of judgment. But also a day when we who follow Jesus We'll meet with Jesus and he will welcome us to the wedding banquet and he will lift the cup and we will see him as he is and we will be transformed into his likeness and we will be with him forever. That is our sure hope. So may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. May God bless you. Amen.